morning's text, the second chapter of Romans, verses 12 through 16. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous for, before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show the work of the law written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. All right, this week we're going to take a closer look at Romans 2, 12 through 16. And I think you're saying we just read, did that last week, and, and I understand that. Um, but it, it, it's, it's good to take our time here, right? I mean, you know, let's go ahead and read it. Verse 12 today says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Now, you're also thinking at this point, like, wow, man, um, sin and judgment is, is, is still Paul's theme. Um, by now, you're probably thinking, you know, when will we get some good news? Because the first three chapters of Romans is tough. I, I will admit that. It, it's, it's hard because it's judgment, sin, judgment, sin. And, uh, and then you say, and then you're going to go back and bathe in it again this week, Right. Yeah, and next week, and probably the next week. I'm just going to give you a warning. This is kind of where, where we are in, in the book of Romans. It's, it's um, well, R.C. Sproul put it this way. Before we get to the good news, the justification by faith, we must be brought kicking and screaming before the holy standard of God's law so that we might be duly persuaded of our need for the gospel. So that's important. So bear with me, be patient. The story is told of Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan pastor in the 18th century, uh, that he was preaching through Romans, and he was ending a sermon um, that was, you know, powerful, uh, stirring sermon on sin and, and judgment. And uh, one of his parishioners hollered out, but Mr. Edwards, is there no mercy with God? To which Jonathan Edwards replied, You'll have to come back next Sunday for that message. <laughs> Which is basically what I'm saying, in a sense, as we go through the book of Romans, we're going verse by verse, just like Paul wrote the letter. And we have to remind ourselves that Romans is a letter, probably read right through, straight, no chapter divisions as, as we're used to. It wasn't like sermons that we preach with happy little endings every time. It was a letter read. And I think that we do ourselves well to read through the book of Romans like that from start to finish getting Paul's uh, theme as he sets it up and he's taking time to do to do this for a reason we need to be reminded constantly who we are before a holy God and so that's what we're, we're setting up here so having said that the letter to Romans is a master thesis of the gospel it, it is and we we can't rush that it begins by establishing how God's law condemns all who break it and that's a part of today's message for sure. And therefore, all sinners and lawbreakers are therefore under the curse of judgment. But then it moves on in great detail to reveal how sinners are justified before that holy God in Christ alone. So we'll get there in a few weeks, that part. 
But what does that verse 12 mean? Let's look at that again. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. It's basically saying those who sin, and that's the focus here. It's, uh, a lot of us get on, well, who, the Jews had the law, and the Gentiles didn't have the law, and blah, blah, blah. That's not really the main focus here. The main focus is all who sin. All who sin. Whether you've got a law of Moses, or whether you're a pagan Gentile that doesn't have the law of Moses written down before you, all who sin will be judged. That's the point there. All who sin and, and, and whether or not you possess the law, you will perish. John Stott said this. We have all sinned against God's moral law, whether we have come to know it by special or general revelation. Special meaning the Bible, general meaning nature, like Paul has already told us. Goes on to say, By grace or by nature, outwardly or inwardly, in the scripture or in the heart, is largely irrelevant, however you've come to know. The point is that all human beings have, have known something of God, but have suppressed the truth in order to indulge in wickedness. So we all come under the righteous judgment of God. So again, that's just reiterating what Paul has already told us in, in chapter 1, that all people know something of God because he has made it known unto them through creation and especially the Jewish people with a law. And yet Paul's saying all are without excuse. Now let's notice something as he gets into, the, in, into to verse 13. Because again, as last week we talked about, at this point Paul's target to really convince of sin is the Jewish people who had the law of God and took a lot of pride in that, took a lot of pride in being the chosen people of God, took a lot of, of, of pride and comfort in thinking, all right, nothing is wrong with us. But look at verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Wow, we've got we to look at this, especially in the book of Romans. <laughs> this is very striking, Right? Did Paul just say it's the doers of the law who will be justified? Paul just said that we're justified by keeping the law? Now let's talk about this. Obviously, we know, and I'll answer, I'll give you a spoiler alert. That's not what Paul's saying. <laughs> the whole book of Romans is basically known as saying we are justified by faith, not by works. And we'll see that over and over and over. So what is this? What is this here in verse 13? For it is not the hearers of the law who are just uh, made righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Well, obviously, uh, in one hand, he, as Calvin uh, interpreted this, is talking about the fact that if we keep the law, as God says, and live, as it says in the Old Testament, he who keeps the law will live by the law, uh, it, but in order to do that, you must keep all of the law and you must keep it all perfectly from the heart, not just the outside. So it's not about knowing the law. It's not about keeping some of the law. It's not about keeping all of the law on the outside where everybody sees and still sitting on the inside. It's about being perfect inside and out, keeping every law. No man can do that. 
So we understand, in one sense, this is hypothetical. There's no way anybody can keep the law. But I do want to go on and talk about this also. The Jews love to hear the law. They love to hear. They just wanted to talk about doctrine and, 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 and all their statements of faith, so to speak. And they just talked about it and learned about it and heard about it. But they, so, so that's the head knowledge, right? That's the head. And folks, our heads must first be affected with the truth of God's gospel. Our heads must hear. We must hear. But it can't just stay there. It can't just be, our faith cannot just be an assent to the truth we hear. Okay, yeah, I, I hear it. I got it up here. No, the heart has got to be affected as well. So here's the thing. that They love to hear the law and had it in their head, but they had no heart for knowledge. They had no heart knowledge of the law. So true faith in Christ affects our head, yes, but it also affects our heart, which ultimately affects our hands, how we live, right, what we do. And so this is where I think Paul is saying that we are, yes, justified by faith. And I'm going to build this out as we go. So, so hang, please, boy, hang with me. It's so easy to leave here and misconstrue what I say. Because in one sermon, you can't hit every nuance, but we're going for the main points here. So hang with me. But get this statement, and don't stone me. <laughs> in a sense, we could say that Paul is going to teach us here, along with James in a moment, that we are justified by faith alone in Christ, and that that faith is justified by works. So hang in there, right? Hang in there with me. We're justified, made right in the sight of God by faith, but that faith is revealed genuine by works. So, okay, we're going we're gonna to build that right up here. Now, obviously, Paul's not teaching justification by works. So we've already said that. He is saying that if a person has genuine faith, it will be made evident by their works. And only in that sense, by the way. So in that sense, and only in that sense, is keeping the law rather than just knowing the law what justifies us as it gives evidence to a genuine faith. Now, that's what James is saying. So everybody puts, uh, and they, they pit Paul and James against each other, right? When Paul was all about justification by faith alone, and James was all about justification by works without faith. That's not true. They both believed the same gospel. They both were basically correcting different enemies at different times on two extremes. But yet, look at what, how we see Paul and James together here. James says in, in James 1.22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. That's exactly what Paul just said. It's not those who just hear the law, but those who do the law that prove they have been justified by faith. That's basically an interpretation of what Paul's saying there. Because they're keeping that law of God because their hearts have been made right through faith in Christ. And that's what James is saying. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. If you're only a hearer of God's word and God's truth of the gospel, but you're not doing anything, nothing has changed, you're deceiving yourself. That's tough preaching. I mean, you talk about tough preaching. James and Paul, they're not messing around. 
You say you're a Christian, you say you believe in Christ, and yet you do nothing to obey him? But you say you have faith? You deceive. You're deceiving yourself. He goes on. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and, and, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the, the word of God is like a mirror as we, as we look at it, it reflects who we are. So those who look into the perfect law, uh, the law of liberty and, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed. He is justified in his doing. Now, what does that mean? As we look at the word of God, we can't just glance at it like so many do. Okay, let me take a look. Okay, there's what the gospel is. I kind of got that. I'm out of here. You didn't look at the word of God long enough to say, wait a minute. Look what it reveals about me. Look, look at this. I am, I am grotesquely sinful. Because in that mirror, not only do we see our image, we see the perfection of a holy God. And we realize, wait a minute, compared to the perfection of a holy God, I am greatly misformed, misshapen. I am sinful. So we don't just walk away from it and forget. We don't forget who we... When a person truly gets a glimpse of the holy God in heaven and a glimpse of their sinfulness, you don't forget it. It's a work of grace in us. But notice it changes us. And we begin to do something as a result of being changed by the gospel that has revealed to us who God is and who we are. And so we run to the cross for the cleansing, right? The fountain that washes us white as snow and makes us righteous. And we rest in him. And because of his merit and his grace and his strength, then we begin to act and become doers of the word. We become keepers of the commands. Look at James 2, 14 and through 17. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no works, deeds? Can such faith save them? Wow. And he gives an example. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. If one of you says to him, go in peace, keep warm, and be well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, listen to this, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. It's hard, tough preaching here, but it's what the Bible says. Look at James 2, 18 and 19. He kind of brings it together here. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. <laughs> By the way, Paul, uh, James is also bringing out a very strong truth, the very truth that, that Paul proclaims all the time. Both of those are wrong. You have, someone say, I work, I keep the law. That's what justifies me. James says, wrong. Just as wrong as the person who says, I have faith, but I don't do anything to obey Christ. I just believe in my head. I have, you know, wrong. <laughs> You see that? Someone will say, you have faith, I have works. James answers, show me your faith apart from your works, 
and I'll show you my faith by my works. You will try to tell me that you have faith apart from any works of obedience to Christ. Your life has not changed one iota, and yet you're telling me that you have faith in Christ and have accepted him as your personal savior, and yet there's no change in your life. I will show you my faith is genuine by the works I'm doing by the grace of God. You see that? Okay, hang with me. <laughs> Again, some have mistakenly believed that one is justified by faith. And here's again, this is where we've got to also correct this, this thing. Some mistakenly believe that one is justified by faith and sanctified by works. So they kind of get it mixed up that way. Okay, I've been, I've been justified, made right in the sight of God by faith in Jesus. But now to become more like Christ, it's up to me to strap on the good works and sanctify myself. So I've heard people say this growing up, that we're, we're, we're justified by faith and sanctified by works. Anybody see a problem? You will by the time this sermon's over, I pray. <laughs> so here's what I want us to understand. That is false. We are not, God's salvation is full, by the way. And justification and sanctification and ultimate glorification, the perfection we have when we stand before God, that is all salvation. And it's all by grace. <laughs> so, let, so, so understand, we are saved by grace through faith. We then obey and keep God's commands by grace through faith. So write that in your minds. Get, let's get this in our hearts. This is a catechism in a sense. How are we saved and sanctified? How are we justified and sanctified? We are saved and justified by grace through faith. We then obey and keep God's commands by grace through faith. It's all by grace through faith. This is what Philippians 2, 12 through 13 is all about. This is Paul. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. Again, every time you see these apostles writing to the church, they're talking about obedience. If we really are careful students of the New Testament and read what the church believed, this silly idea of unhitching ourselves from the Old Testament and God's law is ridiculous. The idea that now the law means the Ten Commandments, we, we don't need to worry about those. We're saved by grace. Yahoo! Anything goes. No. You see the apostles and they write the believers, they're talking about obedience. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He say, he's saying, he didn't say, okay, here's what he didn't say. Hey, my fellow believers, you've always been obeying. You've been doing a great job obeying and keeping God's commands. But now rest in grace. No more obedience needed. It's okay. He didn't say that. Matter of fact, he doubles down. You've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out, continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Working out means live it out. If you are truly, if your faith is real, it will be effectual. It will begin to work. It will affect your hands and your feet, where you walk, how you, how you live. And he goes on to say, look at this, here it is. How do I do that? How am I going to do this, Paul? How am I going to work out? my salvation? How am I going to do the good works? 
of God in my flesh. You're not. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We should be happy. We should be thrilled here that everything, my justification is by God's grace and my obedience to him is by his grace. That we, we, we need his grace for everything we do. So here it is. Me, me doing good works is not me trying to earn salvation, folks. So that's, don't get confused, especially where we live. Little Rome, Western Hills, right? I mean, the idea of a merit-based salvation is real. The idea of doing good to earn God's favor is strong here. So understand this. Me doing good works is not me trying to earn salvation, but rather God revealing his salvation has already been given to me. Do you see that? Us doing good works is not us trying to earn God's salvation. Us doing good works and obeying his commands is God revealing that he has already saved us by God's grace. And we're living that out by his grace. It's Christ in us, as Paul said. It's, it's not I who live anymore, Paul said, but Christ who lives in me. And as Philippians said, it's God who works in you both to will and to do and to accomplish the work. Okay, we got to keep, I'm going to stay on this. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Look at this. This, 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 this verse that begins by being a champion of those who would say, we don't have to do anything. It's, it's just faith and we're saved by grace and then we can do whatever we want. Ends up being a very strong correction of that. Verse 8 of Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Amen. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. People say, good, see, I don't have to do anything ever. Uh -uh. It's a gift of God, not a result of works. So that no one may boast. And we say, wahoo, oh, that's what we like. I just have a little faith. I just say, Jesus saved me, and then it's all done. Yes and no. As far as our justification, our right standing before God, it's by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, not a result of works. <laughs> we can't brag about being made right in the sight of God. So that's plain, and that is simple Faith in the gospel and in the merit of Christ and his perfection. But look what that verse goes on if we read 9 and 10. We are his workmanship. So again, clarifying that my salvation, my being born again is all his work. We are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus. Now look. For good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you see, it all goes together. We're, we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, but also now he's talking about the good works. What? Yes, we're saved by grace through faith in Christ, and we are sanctified. That means we begin to do the good works by faith in Jesus Christ and by his grace. So that's what we see Paul saying there. It's not the hearers of the law only, those who just hear the law, that are justified. It's those who 
keep the law because the grace of God has worked in you and the evidence that you have heard the gospel and genuinely had faith in Christ alone is that you also keep the law and therefore your faith is justified, revealed as being genuine. All right, here we go. We got to keep going. Verse 14, back to Romans 2, verse 14. He's going to continue to build up on this idea that whether you have the law as a Jew or whether you're an unchurched pagan Gentile that never saw the Ten Commandments in your life, <laughs> you're still under the judgment of God if you sin. So Romans 14, he explains, he says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Wow. Now, what's he talking? He's talking about something called eus gentium. Eus gentium, which is Latin for law of nations, the law of nations. This, this concept of there's, there's morality that is universal, right? All around the world, there is a universal morality that says you don't kill a universal morality that says you just don't walk up to somebody's property and take it for yourself. You don't steal. And on and on, right? We, we just see there's decency and it's kind of a universal thing. There's something that causes all of our hearts, whether we're in America or Russia or Ethiopia, wherever we are, to see a video of an elderly person minding their own business, walking down the street, and some young punk come up behind them and just punch them and knock them out right to the ground. There's something in all of us that says, it cringes, that's not right. Eus gentium. There is a moral law of the nations. And that's what Paul's talking about. In Romans 1 especially, when he says that you are without excuse. Those who suppress God's truth. Look at verse 14. For we, we, we did look at verse 14, so let's continue to talk about it. Look, here's the idea about that. <laughs> here's the idea. Even though they don't have the law, the Gentiles are obeying the law. That's what he says. He said, when Gentiles do by nature what you Jews should be doing according to the, the law, they're showing they have a law to themselves. There's a law, there's a moral law, right? That's what he's saying. Realize this. Moses kept the law before Mount Sinai. It was already understood that you don't kill. <laughs> See? God's moral laws were already there because all moral truth comes from God. And all men are made in the image of God. We all have his law imprinted on our hearts. So, notice uh, verse 15. Here's what's happening to that Gentile who's keeping the law, even though they don't have the law of God. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. So don't get confused here. The, the, the conscience is not the moral law of God in itself. So understand there's two, there's, there's the law of God written on their hearts and their conscience is also bearing witness. 
And look at this. And their conflicting thoughts, this again is, is based on the conscience now of a human. <laughs> their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So there's a lot here about our conscience. But I want to, before we jump on that, I want to make sure that we understand about this law written in our hearts. Paul's not talking here about Jeremiah 31, where God writes his law in the hearts of believers. But rather, again, of this law, the, the eus gentium, this universal moral law that all humans know right from wrong. And that's what Paul was saying in Romans 1, 19 through 20. Let's just refresh our minds there. Romans 1, 19 through 20, he says, For what can be known about God is plain to them. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm going to use this water. I've never really done it. Here it is. You wonder if I ever need it? Ah, whew. Okay. <clears throat> Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. There's no excuse for a human being to break the commands of God because all the things about God, his moral truth, have been made known to them. Now, let's go back to the conscience. <clears throat> what, what is that about? <laughs> and the real question about conscience, was Jiminy Cricket right? Jiminy Cricket. You all remember Jiminy Cricket? Yes. So with, with Pinocchio, what was Jiminy Cricket? He was kind of like his conscience. He was always in his ear, kind of whispering and trying to tell him, oh, don't do that. Those are bad boys or, you know, whatever. <laughs> But Jiminy had this advice, right? What was his advice? Let your conscience... Okay, we've all taken that advice. But is, is it right? We've all heard that. Let your conscience be your guide. And is it, is it right? Well, yes and no. Yes and no. Let your conscience be your guide. Can be right, but it can also be very, very wrong. Let me tell you why. The conscience, anybody, the conscience is foreign to the Old Testament. The, the Old Testament people didn't talk about conscience. They talked about the result of conscience, but they never had this idea of conscience. It's more of a Greek construct during the time of Paul that was kind of coming to be known as, as that inward uh, wrestling within us about right and wrong. So the term conscience developed. But the conscience, what, what is the conscience? The conscience is not authoritative but it is suggestive. And then we have to understand that. Our conscience is not authoritative. It doesn't write laws. It doesn't come up with moral truths. It's simply suggestive, not authoritative. So it, it tells us, oh, I think this is not good, <laughs> based on something. But it's only suggestive. It's not a, it didn't come up with that moral law itself. So the idea there, and I, I'll put it like this, the conscience is not a norm Let's do it that way. The conscience is not a norm for action, but an inner witness that judges whether or not an action has broken a norm. Does that make sense? The conscience itself is not the norm, but it's only a warning device to tell us whether or not we have broken a norm, a, 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 a moral law, letting you know the action is right or wrong. So this idea of let your conscience be your guide, which is also very close to a, another similar phrase, which says, listen to your heart, Right? Follow your heart. Let your conscience be your guide. And the problem with all of that is that the human conscience 
in and of itself is fallible and it can be seared, right? Our conscience can be seared, it can grow cold, it can become calloused. Our hearts are deceitful, the Bible says, deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can even know our heart, the Bible says? How do we, our hearts go hither and tither? One minute this, one minute that. So, so this is advice. We're putting our, and you see in our society today, we're putting our stock as to what governs us, what decides what's right and wrong. We're putting our stock in something that's not authoritative, that doesn't write moral laws in itself. Our consciences and our hearts. That's what today's society is basing all of its decisions on what is right and what is wrong. They're basing it on their hearts and their conscience and their feelings. And so, and so we're deceived. Paul warned it in 1 Timothy 4 when he said, uh, he warned people about being deceived by liars whose consciences have been seared, Paul said. So it shows us right there, the conscience cannot be trusted in and of itself. Our conscience, listen, get, get this. Our consciences are only as good as the authority or source or law they are informed by. Do you, do you get that? Your conscience is only as good as the moral law that, it, that informs it, the source that informs it. Therefore, if you have a false source of morality over here, your conscience can be deceived into saying, oh, that's, that's good. You see, that's how we get to the place where the Bible says they will call evil good and good evil. Because the people will stop putting their faith and trust in the unchangeable law of God, the authority of morality, and begin to trust in their feelings and in their conscience. And our consciences, folks, can be manipulated to believe anything. That's why, that's why Paul said in our verse that their consciences are accusing and, and excusing them. It's confusing, he said. It's kind of a confusing thing going on in their, in their conscience as it, as it accuses them one minute, oh, I'm so guilty, and excuses them the next. Oh, that's okay, don't worry about it. And what we end up doing is excusing sin many times, justifying sin when our consciences are off base, when, they, when the source they're looking to is wrong. And that's what Paul's talking about. He says that's going to continue in, in, in the hearts of those who suppress the truth of God. There's a law unto them that says this is right and this is wrong, but then their conscience kind of gets involved and they have not submitted to God and his grace and his truth, but they're just now letting their conscience be their guide. And they're going to continue excusing themselves and then feeling guilty about truth. You know, your conscience then begins to accuse you, well, that's kind of hard, don't do that, don't say that, when it's actually the truth that we're saying. And then we begin to say things that are not true, and the conscience says, that's good. You see my point? That's going to continue, the Bible says, until it's brought to an abrupt halt. And that's in verse 16. It continues, this conscience, excusing or accusing us, all the way up until the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. And that's the theme here. There's ultimate judgment that goes beyond our own conscience. It judges rightly. So anything that we're thinking about ourselves and how we're excusing ourselves 
and accusing ourselves wrongly apart from true authority and the true knowledge of God's law and morality, it will be brought out and judged by the one who can make all judgments, Jesus Christ. We will stand before him and the secrets of men will be judged. So it doesn't matter at that point what, what our conscience is telling us. <laughs> Let me tell you, folks, the minute that every human being stands before the throne of God and Christ judges them, the conscience, our conscience hightails it and runs like a whimpering dog. Woo, 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 woo. They're gone. It's gone. There's nothing. There's no defense. Nothing. And the secrets of men's hearts are judged by Christ. There will be no skeletons in the closet on that day, is what he's saying. I mean, this is horrifying. Again, <laughs> how our culture needs to hear this loving message. You say, this is not loving. It is loving. Why do we not see that allowing a whole generation of people to blindly follow a false conscience all the way to the judgment day when they stand before God and everything is stripped away? And the judge of righteousness condemns them for never resting in the provision of the blood of Christ. There'll be no skeletons in the closet that day. They, they, they will try to deny. Well, I didn't know you. I didn't know you were real. No, you're without excuse. The law was written on your hearts and nature screamed, there's a creator. You suppressed the truth of God for a lie. Everything will be exposed. So what a horrifying feeling, right? To be naked, fully exposed, standing there with <laughs> no, no recourse. It's horrifying. We need, we need desperately covering. We're all naked, folks. <laughs> all human beings are naked and exposed to the God with whom we will have to deal one day. He sees, he, he sees right through us. We need a covering. We need a covering. And that's what redemption through Christ is. Redemption through Christ is the great cover-up. <laughs> it is. As, as R.C. Sproul had, had said that, that the, the redemption of Christ is the great cover-up. Beginning back in the Garden of Eden, what happened when Adam and Eve sinned? What's the first thing God did? He clothed them. He covered them. He covered them. They tried to cover themselves. He said, that's not, that's not good. I will cover you. And that's what believers do. They simply come to, to God and they open up. And they, uh, uh, what, I, what I mean, that's what believers have done. What sinners do is they come to, to God admitting they're sinners. And he's holy. And they're naked. And only he has the garments to clothe. And they rest in the gospel. They trust. They believe that Jesus did the work. And his blood was the ransom. And, and God's just demands were met. And now the just is the justifier. And, and, and we believe that. And what happens? We are then clothed. And here's our joy. Psalm 32, 1. David said, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. That's, that's what we will be getting to here in Romans. 
But for now, I just want to encourage you to, to wallow in this point that all of us, whether we have the law of God or whether we don't have the law of God, whether we have great biblical knowledge or whether we have little biblical knowledge, great doctrinal wisdom or little theological prowess, doesn't matter. All who sin will perish. Run to Christ, the only one who can cover us. And then the one who causes us to keep that law of God, to begin to live a life, slowly but surely, that begins to represent what a believer is and should be by the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed at your word. Someone here today may need to see blatantly and bluntly who they are before you, and because of that, they also see the glory of the cross now like they've never seen it before. Maybe they've taken for granted all those years the Bible stories about Jesus dying on a cross. But now today, because of your mirror, they have seen their wretchedness and their great need to be cleaned by you. May they fall upon your grace in Christ Jesus, trusting his perfect work for them. And then may those of us who have had that head knowledge and also it has moved into our heart and we have been affected by the gospel, let our hands demonstrate it by loving others, by loving our neighbor, by, by acting, by serving, by obeying your commands. All of it for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.